Well, I told you that we're going to talk about the gospel, the uh, cross in the gospel, and the resurrection in the gospel. None, none are, none, all are necessary that any person might be reconciled to God. So let me give you a quick outline of the gospel. Uh, let's start with sin. What is sin? Sin is falling short of the glory of God, of God's perfection, his holiness, his righteousness. Um, a way that I've been describing it lately, I, I, I think it's an, an, an okay way to do it, is um, in any way transgressing his holiness, his righteousness, or his perfection. So as uh, image bearers of God, as creatures to him as creator, sin would be any time a person uh, transgresses his truth, his righteousness, his perfection. When sin happens, it corrupts and it makes a person unrighteous. So, so the minute that a person commits a sin, however large or small the sin is, there is no, there is no difference in the corruption of a large sin versus a small sin because corruption is binary. It's either or not. Now, the wrath associated with sin is relative to the sin itself. So somebody tells a lie, the magnitude of wrath associated with that lie would be very different than the magnitude of wrath that somebody like Hitler would incur based upon all of the, um, the Jews that he murdered. But sin itself, all by itself, causes a person to be corrupt and makes a person unrighteous. A corrupt, unrighteous person cannot have relationship with God and is eternally separated from him. Now, I, I didn't include the scripture, but there's only one person, one um, citizen of mankind, that's the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, that was absolutely righteous. So the Bible teaches us in many places that there is none righteous, there is none that seeks after God. You, you might want to argue that case, that you you had some goodness to you before you met Jesus, but you would be measuring that goodness and that righteousness on a scale that is so insignificant to the scale that matters, which is God's own righteousness, his own perfection, that you can't claim any righteousness before God. So once that corruption happens, you're corrupted. A person's lost righteousness cannot be uh, regained that that corrupts them cannot be regained by the person so when I committed sin I became corrupt I became separate from God and there is nothing that I could do to regain my righteousness before God of myself it's important that you hear me when I say of myself that righteousness would be self-righteousness and no human being but Jesus the Son of God the Son of Man was ever righteous before God. And sin creates a debt between a person and God, an unpayable, impossible to ever repay debt. If you're familiar with the parable of the, the, the king who had a subject who owed him an unpayable debt, that, that's, that um, parable is speaking to our debt to God. It's impossible for us to ever repay of ourselves that sin debt that we've created between us and God. So that, that's sin. Now, now let's talk about justice for just a second. 
the wage or the debt of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. So the minute you sin, or I sin, or any person sins, and all have, they create an unpayable debt. The wage or the recompense for that debt is death. Death is eternal separation from God. In the natural, every human being is going to die, unless they're raptured. But generally, every human being will die. That's a physical death. Every human being, every soul will be eternal in that it will spend eternity either with God in his heaven or it will spend eternity away from God under his wrath continuously paying that debt that can't be paid. Um, the recompense of that debt is the wrath of God. Um, it's spoken of as hell or the eternal lake of fire. Justice demands that the debt must be paid. So the wrath of God poured out on a sinner is required because otherwise justice wouldn't be served. If a person were able to transgress God and create that situation, justice demands that there's a recompense. That's how, that's the lake of fire. That's the, the wrath of God. It's eternal because the debt is impossible. So a person can't spend a year or 10 years or 100 years um, under the wrath of God and at some point have repaid that debt such that they could then come back into his presence. The, the magnitude of the debt causes an eternal recompense. The eternal wrath is necessary and it's righteous. People say, well, I couldn't serve a God that would send somebody to hell. Well, God doesn't send people to hell. People decide to go to hell. God has offered all of us reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Some people, as the Bible says, they rather desire the darkness than they do the light. And they choose not to take advantage of what God has offered them in Jesus Christ and therefore damn themselves to hell. God doesn't do it. It's his will that all would come to repentance and that none would be lost, that every single person would um, accept the gift that he's offering in Jesus Christ. But most don't. The magnitude of the debt requires the righteous wrath of God for eternity. If we look at the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, there was a, there was a mechanism of satisfying God's wrath, but not eternally satisfying God's wrath. The the Mosaic Law and what we see in the Law and the Prophets in the Old Testament of the Bible is to make us understand that we need an eternal Savior. It was to point us towards Jesus Christ. They would offer their sacrifices again and again and again. As a person recognized his sin, he would go to the Law, he would understand what the right recompense for that sin was, he would bring it to the priest, the priest would then offer it to God, and that sin would be covered over, but it wouldn't be eternally atoned for. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the only time during the course of the year, and the only person that God would ordain to come into the Holy of Holies uh, in the tabernacle or the temple and make an offering first for himself because he was a sinner. So he would offer blood to God at the altar 
for his own sin that would then make him worthy to present blood on behalf of all of Israel for their sin that hadn't been atoned for during the course of the past year. And then that would cover that sin until he had to do it again and again and again. The problem with that system is the person making the offering on behalf of the people was a person who was corrupted by sin and wasn't perfectly um, qualified to be able to make that presentation to God once and for all. And the blood that was offered, if they were sincere, would have been from the most perfect lamb or turtle dove or whatever it was that they were offering that they could find, but there was never perfection in the offering. So the high priest making the offering and the offering that he presented were both imperfect, therefore they could not cover sin once and for all. All of this pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ in the cross. Now, under the new covenant that, that we, you know, the church, the body of Jesus, our, um, our relationship is established with God. We're reconciled to God. In this new covenant, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God was offered. That was Jesus himself. His perfect blood was shed as eternal atonement for sin once and for all because... Jesus, as our high priest, was perfect. So he was qualified to offer to God perfection. His blood, which was the blood that was shed, as, as the, the phrase would be, the, the perfect and spotless lamb of God, Jesus himself was the sacrificial lamb, and he was perfect. He had no sin, he'd never transgressed, but had fulfilled the law. Therefore, Jesus, as perfect high priest, and Jesus as perfect and spotless sacrificial lamb of God together was an offering that God would receive that would end or would compensate or would atone for all of mankind's sin for all of time. The key to this is that you, people would say, well, is the blood of Jesus not enough? Well, the blood of Jesus is absolutely enough for all of humanity. But the blood of Jesus that's not applied to a person's heart doesn't save them. So unless the blood is applied, there is no satisfaction for God. And the way that that blood is applied is by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have a headache and you say, hey, boy, I have a headache. And somebody says, well, here, I have three aspirin. Take these aspirin and they'll make the headache. Or here are these aspirin for your headache. And the person holds them in their hand or puts them in their pocket, and an hour later they come back together. How's your headache? Oh, it's killing me. It's no better. Well, what would you do with the aspirin? Well, they're here in my pocket. Well, they never applied the aspirin to the headache by taking the aspirin. The same is true. When somebody is presented the gospel, they will either receive it or they'll reject it. They'll either just choose to die to themselves and live to Christ, or they won't. If they choose to receive the gospel in the manner that the gospel is presented to them, then they've applied the blood of Jesus to their sin and they're eternally forgiven. The covenant response. So the covenant is possible in the blood of Jesus. The response that a human being, a person must make to enter into covenant is called faith. And a person acknowledges, here's what, what saving faith looks like. A person would acknowledge their sin, their rebellion and their lostness towards God. A person who doesn't believe that they've been uh, separated from God would would never be able to be reconciled back to God because they would never 
they would never recognize their lostness. Therefore, they would never actually consummate the covenant. So a person would acknowledge their sin, acknowledge they've been rebellious towards God as, as the king or the Lord of their own lives, and that they were eternally lost towards him. They would then repent. This is the response. They would repent, which means to sincerely decide to turn away from their sinful life and transfer the lordship, the kingship, the mastery of their lives to Jesus, and that they would absolutely trust and believe that the sacrificial offering of Jesus completely satisfies 100% of their sin debt to God. They understand that they have no righteousness that may be offered, but only exclusive faith in the Lord Jesus as being sufficient. That point is worth a little bit more talk. When when we come to Christ for salvation, we bring nothing. We're, we're bare naked in our sins. And we have to understand that the only thing that atones for our sins is his righteousness and his sacrifice on our behalf. The minute that we think that we bring anything or we have to bring anything, that we have to be good or we, we have to be okay. Like people say, I can't come to Jesus, I'm too horrible. It's like that's the only way you can come to Jesus is in your horrible. The minute we try to add anything, any righteousness of our own, we become um, we can't receive his gift because we've be, we've decided that we want to place ourselves back under the law, which means we have to be self-righteous, but because of our corruption, it's impossible and we cannot regain our righteousness. Remember I said no person of himself can be righteous once they're corrupted? Of himself is the key. Of Jesus Christ, you can become righteous before God again. So a person acknowledges that they need a Savior. They confess repentance, that they've decided that they're going to serve and follow Jesus rather than themselves. And they trust absolutely and completely exclusively in his sacrifice as having satisfied. That's where the word propitiation you see in your Bibles comes from. Satisfied the debt that they owe to God. The reason why I use exclusive is a guy like my friend Lan that I told you about early is a Hindu. Hindus have like a million gods. I had to make sure that when I shared the gospel with Lan, because he would be happy to receive Jesus as God number one million and one. But Jesus will not stand with other gods. There is no other God. And Lan has to understand that in order for him to receive Jesus, Jesus must be Lord, and any other idol God has to be renounced. We see all over Scripture that idolaters will never, ever inherit the kingdom of God. So then, once this gospel has been presented, and a person enters into covenant with God by their response of faith, which I've just shared with you, the result becomes that the blood of Jesus is applied to them, resulting then in their sin being transferred to the account of Jesus, justice, the wrath associated with that sin, having been paid at the cross, and the absolute perfection, holiness, and righteousness of God himself is imputed to that person, such that that person is no longer seen in their sin. I think Gail mentioned, God says, I don't remember your sins. From, from the perspective of his mind, God remembers everything. There's nothing that's lost to God. But from the perspective of his relationship with Gail or you or me or any person who's responded to the gospel in faith, 
God does not see you as in your sin, but he sees you as righteous in his son, Jesus Christ, that the very righteousness of Christ himself has been imputed to you such that you can be reconciled. What happens next then is the person is born again, not of human, corrupt, perishable seed, but of the seed of God himself. So literally, spiritually, when you express faith, then God the Holy Spirit recreated you a new being by the very seed of God. So when Jesus says that nobody, without being born again, can enter the kingdom of heaven, that's what he means. When, when a person, you know, my, my brother's on the line, Jamie, so nice to see you here. Uh, when, I don't know, sometime after Teresa and I got saved, we were sitting with my mom, and she, she said, kind of in a mocking fashion, you guys aren't some of those born-again Christians, are you? And as, as limited as our understanding was at that time, we did understand that unless we're one of them, they're born-again Christians. It was somehow it had become a derogatory term because my mom knew the Lord. She'd been to church in the Presbyterian church in the town where she'd grown up. And she could probably, I mean, she understood tithing and things like that. So she wasn't ignorant to Christianity, but she didn't have an understanding that without actually being born of the seed of God, you cannot be reconciled into relationship with him. So the person is born again, not of human, corrupt, perishable seed, but of the seed of God himself. That person then becomes a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Most of you should recognize scripture here. Um, the person also then becomes the temple of the living God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Through repentance and the transformation that comes from a renewed mind, they go from glory to glory into the image of the Lord Jesus. So by the power of God and our desire, we become transformed to be like Jesus. And the metaphor that they use is like looking in a mirror. Yesterday I looked in the mirror and I looked a little like Jesus and mostly like me in the soulish part of me. But the next day, by the work of God and my agreement, when I look in the mirror, so to speak, I see that wrinkles and, and spots have been wiped away and I look more like Jesus. And looking like Jesus is the reflection of our lives. And then finally, every spot and wrinkle is washed away by the Lord, by the washing of the water of the word. So the spots and the wrinkles, I believe, really represent those things that are unholy and ungodly in our life. They've, they've marked us and marred us soulishly. Our spirit is reconciled. It's one with God. It's like uh, honey in the hot tea. But our soul has to be transformed. It has to be retrained. And, and he, he wipes off every spot and every wrinkle, metaphorically, by the washing of the water of the word. It's beautiful. So the gospel, the good news, is how God righteously, righteously offers freedom from the debt, the just wage of sin, without compromising justice, such that a person, through Jesus, may be eternally reconciled to God, which the Bible calls life. So uh, an unsaved person is alive, but they're not alive eternally, and they're not alive to God. They're under the wrath of God, unless that they should, by faith, receive the gift that he offers in the shed blood of his son, Jesus. That is as short a presentation of the gospel as I think you'll ever get from me. Let's move on. 
What, what is the purpose of the cross? Where does the cross fit into the gospel? Essentially, the cross is where that perfect blood was offered and justice was satisfied. So at the cross, and when we say the cross, we're really talking about Jesus' passion, his suffering that happened from uh, the time he was captured in the garden until uh, the time he physically, literally died. So in that time, he was mocked, he was spat upon, he was uh, ridiculed, he had his beard, the beard on his face literally pulled out of his skin. He was, uh, they fashioned for him a crown of thorns and they jammed it down into his scalp. Um, they beat him, they flogged him. They, they flogged him in such a way that he was purported to have been unrecognizable almost as a human being. That his skin was so ripped apart from his body parts that his guts were visible. After that, they, they marched him through the, through the town with the cross on his shoulder. He was so beat up that somebody had to be um, picked out of the crowd and forced to carry the cross for him just to get him to the place where he'd be nailed to it. He was literally nailed to that cross with his bloody, ripped-apart back against that rough wood with spikes driven through his wrists and through his feet. See, the, the way that the cross kills a person is by um, uh, suffocation. That he, when the cross was uprighted with all the other things he was suffering with, he couldn't breathe because the way it suspends you, it it hinders your diaphragm from being able to open and close so you can't breathe. So what Jesus would have to do is he would have to pull that raw skin against that wood, push against the spike that was in his feet, pull against the spikes that were through the big um, nerves in his wrist and rise himself up to the point where he could take a breath and then slouch back down and then do it again and slouch back down and again and again and again until he couldn't do it anymore and he was asphyxiated. He would die um, from suffocating. That's the way that the cross was used. That's how the cross affected death on a person. So in that whole thing, that whole suffering of Jesus, including his hanging on the cross, the summary for all of that is the cross. That's where the blood was offered to God, and that's where God's justice was satisfied. So Jesus offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. Remember I mentioned to you earlier, perfect high priest, himself, perfect and spotless Lamb of God. He shed his perfect, we hope. Now, we know that his blood was perfect, but at this point in today's story, we're hoping that his blood is perfect. He shed perfect blood for the remission of sin. He chose to be the bearer, the one who would carry the weight of God's wrath, such that the just penalty for all of mankind's sin could be paid. He did those things that justice would be served. And that those who believe, who express faith, could be reconciled to God eternally. Now let me just give you a couple of scriptures that speak to some of these things. He offered himself as the atoning sacrifice. He shed his blood for the remission of our sin. He bore God's wrath such that those who would believe in him wouldn't have to. All because justice demanded those things. And anybody who believes 
and expresses faith could be reconciled to God. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. You thought I might not quote scriptures. All I've been doing is quoting scriptures. I just haven't been taking you to the Bible yet. Say a silent amen. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. All right, when I hear Teresa's there, I'll go on. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, or this is me, corrupted, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. So why once for all? Because this time, the high priest and the offering were both perfect, and they absolutely propitiated, satisfied God. And, he, and, and so the question then is, why? To be saved? People, me, you, to be saved? Yes. To be reconciled to God? Yes. To be redeemed to God? Yes. But don't miss the end of that course of Scripture. The statement that says to serve the living God. So it's important that we understand that all of this reconciliation, all of this suffering, all of the wrath that was poured out on Jesus, all of that faith would demand from us is not only that we would be reconciled to God, but that our lives would reflect service towards God. That we've been saved not only for the purpose of reconciliation, but we've been saved for the purpose of serving the living God as members of his son's body, that his will might be done on this earth and all that's lost could be found through Jesus operating through his body, which is us serving the living God. Another silent amen. Amen. Okay, very good. Now turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is such a powerful, beautiful scripture. You, you should later read it in context and get the whole thing that's going on. But this gives you kind of a summary of what happened. It says, He, he in this case, is God, the Father. He made him, him is Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him Jesus. So God the Father caused, Jesus agreed with it, it was his doing, but he, he caused Jesus to essentially become sin so that sin could be cursed. He made Jesus sin on our behalf so that as he became sin, we could become righteous before him. How does that thing go? The Son of Man became this, the Son of God became the Son of Man such that the sons of men might become sons of God. Let me say that again. The Son of God became the Son of men, Jesus, such that the sons of men, us, 
might become sons of God. Okay, Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Romans 5 and 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, his is Jesus, much more then, having now been justified, made just, just as if you hadn't sinned, righteous and holy, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. What are we saved from? Well, we could say we're saved from hell, we're saved from the eternal lake of fire. All of that would be true, but that is just recognizing the mechanism of what we're truly saved from, which is the eternal wrath of God. All right. Now let's talk a minute about the gospel and the resurrection. What is the resurrection's significance to the gospel? Why is it necessary? Well, the resurrection is where... Well, let me just go back and I'll, re, I'll repeat the uh, points from the cross and then I'll come to these. So, the cross is where the perfect blood was offered to God and justice was satisfied by the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. The gospel and the resurrection is where that blood offering was confirmed as having been accepted by God. So, when I said before, and our hope is that Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice, we don't know that until the resurrection. That's where it was confirmed that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's why we have confidence or assurance that our faith is placed in some place that can actually satisfy our problem, Jesus Christ. The resurrection is really the linchpin. It's, it's what all of Christianity hangs on. Um, it's, it's the indispensable linchpin of Christianity. And let me show you why. Turn in your Bible now. You're at Romans 5. Turn to the right a little bit to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Romans 6, 23. 6 to 3. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The part that's important to this conversation right now is the wage of sin, the recompense of sin, the, the just response to sin is death. Not necessarily physical death, but eternal spiritual death. And that verse, that scripture, that truth is an eternal true principle for all of mankind. There is no human who's not subject to that truth. The soul that sins must die. The person that commits sin must, because justice demands it, eternally be separated from God and pay the wage, the recompense of their sin. Not just true, well, true for every man, every person that ever lived, including the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is where our faith comes from. We know that our faith is well-founded because of the resurrection, because the resurrection is where Jesus was seen to have been proved as an acceptable sacrifice to God. So until he resurrected, we don't know whether he had sin or not. We don't know if he was a spotless lamb. We don't know if he was a perfect high priest. But 
because the wage of sin is death, and Jesus himself would have owed that debt, if he'd had any sin, he would not have been resurrected. He would still be dust in that tomb today. But because he was resurrected, we know that he truly was the spotless Lamb of God. We know that he truly um, satisfied God's demand for justice. And therefore, in him, we can place our faith and know that that faith is resting on a foundation that can carry the weight of it. Give me another amen. Amen, Pat. Thank you. Steve, the only one I can see is you. So you just have to play along with me so I feel like I'm actually making a point here. So then let's talk about this. Can a person be saved without believing or trusting in the literal resurrection of Jesus from death to life? Let's say somebody says, well, I believe in Jesus and I believe he died for my sins, but I'm not so sure that he was actually resurrected from the dead. Can that person with that attitude actually be reconciled to God? Could they have truly responded to the gospel? Let's look at the scriptures and see. Turn um, a little further to the right in the book of Romans and go to chapter 10 and we'll read verses 8 through 10. Anybody that's been to Church on the Street twice has heard these verses from me. This is where I think the New Testament summarizes the, the response necessary to the gospel to enter into covenant with God. Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That's words that Paul is using to describe the gospel. The word of faith that we preach is the gospel. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that would be expressing repentance, as we talked about earlier, and... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So when Paul is, is summarizing how you would respond to the gospel to enter into covenant, he gives two conditions. The first condition is that you would surrender the lordship of your life to Jesus, that's his way of saying repentance right here. And secondly, that you would believe sincerely in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. So that would be a pretty good indication that you couldn't actually meet the terms of the covenant unless you sincerely believe that there was a resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. And while you're turning, I'll just explain to you what's going on here. The church at Corinth, which Paul established in his apostolic ministry, the church at Corinth has now been infiltrated by some false teachers, but they're, they're preaching a pretty good message. They're very convincing. And word gets back to Paul that, that the church in Corinth is pondering the message of these false teachers, and the part that's really concerning to him is that these teachers are teaching a gospel, that Paul's gospel was wrong, a gospel that doesn't believe in the resurrected Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Paul speaking to the people who are dealing with this particular decision. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, 
in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if, that's a huge condition, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me just stop for a second. What's he saying? He's saying, I presented the gospel that is a gospel. You're considering a gospel that isn't the gospel. You're standing secure in the gospel that I gave to you because you received it. You responded properly by faith. You are saved in the gospel that I presented to you because you responded by faith. But only if you hold fast to that gospel which I presented to you. If you put your grip, your thoughts, your faith, your belief into some gospel different than that gospel, then the faith that you have is vain. It's of no value. You're lost. He goes on to say, and I, and I included this because this is the only place in the New Testament that actually sort of kind of summarizes the gospel in one spot. For I delivered to you, this is verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He died, he was buried, he was raised, resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's a really interesting point because that should bolster your faith. Paul's not reading from some other New Testament book. Paul is, re is establishing that his gospel is legitimate based upon the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. When he says according to the scriptures, he's talking about the prophecies that we would find in the Old Testament. So then the next scripture we'll see the issue with the gospel that Paul is addressing that literally denies or denies the literal resurrection of the Lord. So turn a little bit further, just a little, in 1 Corinthians 15 down to verse 12. And let me read to you 12 to 19 where he articulates the issue with this false gospel. 15 starting in 12, chapter 15 starting in 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our, Paul's preaching is vain, right? If, if Christ isn't resurrected, then I'm preaching the false gospel. Then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul is is making an argument from the negative side there, if that's true. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of men most to be pitied. So the point he's trying to make with them is, if you deny the literal resurrection of Christ, then you can't be saved. If there is no resurrection of Christ, nobody can be saved. It's only in his resurrection and our faith in that resurrection that we're able to apply the blood of Christ to our sin and be essentially resurrected with Christ. I think that saving faith must acknowledge the risen Christ.
according to what the New Testament teaches. So then, how do we know that Jesus actually was raised from the dead? Well, there's, there's much historical writing, not just biblical historical writing, but other non-biblical writings that would indicate that Jesus was actually historically dead and then not dead anymore. But biblically, we need to understand that the, the writings of the Bible are historical writings. They're truly some of the best um, writings from antiquity that we have. We teach in our colleges philo Greek philosophers like Plato and, and all these different things where there is almost no verifiable historical writings. But in the colleges, we would deny Jesus Christ and ignore the historicity of the writings that we have that would indicate him, his miracles, his prophecy fulfilling, and his resurrection. So I'll use the Bible as historical writing. We'll start in John chapter 20. So you've got to flip to the left towards the end of the Gospel of John. As you pass Mark, stop quick because you're getting close. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the, the intimate circle, the, the apostolic guys that Jesus had with him for three and a half years, but Thomas, one of the twelve, who was also called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, his side was pierced with a spear, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again, Jesus' disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So John, the apostle, one of the twelve that he references, was present when Jesus came into the room and Thomas was there. And he relates to us what happened. So Thomas had heard, but had no faith. He needed proof. Jesus said the blessing comes through faith. They who did not see and yet believed. So Thomas was certainly saved because he knew Jesus to be the resurrected Christ in that very moment. Either way, whether he, he needed to see or he believed by faith, he was seeing the proof of the resurrected Christ. And then finally, go to how we know. Go to 1 Corinthians again, back to chapter 15. I'll start in verse 3, which you've already heard, but I'll use it as context to get to verse through verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also, Paul speaking, Paul, I delivered to you 
as of first importance what I also received from God, he means. I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul, also. So it's important to understand that Paul is speaking of contemporary resurrection witnesses. By contemporary, I mean in that moment, in that time. First was Peter, then the twelve, then 500 all at once, most of who are still alive. So when he's writing this, most of whom are still available to you. Finally, to Paul himself, he doesn't even mention the ladies that were the first to see the resurrected Christ. So contemporary is very key here because any of them could have been confronted and could testify to having seen the risen Christ. So historically, they, you wouldn't challenge people to go find somebody to confirm if you really didn't think that, you, that there was a risen Christ, if you were trying to build some kind of religion for yourself. But because the, the Christ was risen and there were so many literal contemporary witnesses to Jesus after his death, he was bold to say, hey, you can go find any of them. You can look to me. You can look to any of the apostles. You can look to any of the 500, most of which are still alive. And you can know that Jesus was resurrected. I guess the last, finally, on this little portion, how do we know, how can we be sure, is in the Gospel of John. So if we go back to the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we read this. And while you're going there, I'll just share with you. It's so beautiful. John wrote the Gospel of John, and John wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in the Gospel, his you know, by far largest thing that he wrote he, he tells us that we can know that Jesus truly is the Christ. And that's why he wrote. And if you look at 1 John, he says that he wrote that letter so that you could know whether or not you actually were in Christ. So John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life, salvation, in his name. So I would say to anybody out there who's not sure, open a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, and read it. And that testimony from the Gospel of John will demonstrate to you that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Messiah, the prophesied one who you can place your faith in. The Gospel of John would clearly indicate that for us. I'm actually almost done. Thank you for hanging with me. I had this revelation, I don't know, a couple months ago. A way of, of seeing all that we just talked about. And if, if you remember, one of the last Sundays we were together before the quarantine, we took communion. And during the communion, I just came unglued. I mean, I could not stop weeping. The reason I couldn't stop weeping is because what I'm about to share with you, I was experiencing. I was I was seeing it 
in my mind's eye or in my spirit. And it so broke me that all I could do was, was cry. The vision that I saw was this. When, when our time is done on this earth, we're going to go and we're going to be judged. Every human being is going to be judged. Some to eternal damnation and the eternal wrath of God and some to glory eternally reconciled to God. But every person is going to stand before God and give an account of their lives. If sin is found, they're damned. If sin isn't found because they are found to be in Jesus, then they're eternally reconciled to God. And what I saw was this. I saw myself standing before God in judgment and like a big angel or somebody standing like in front of me a little to my left. God was directly in front of me. And this angel had like a giant scroll or like a, like a file cabinet full of papers and listed on those papers was every sin I'd ever committed. From, from the moment I've, I was born, even in my time as a born-again Christian, still haven't committed, committed sins. There were enormous, the magnitude of my sin. And there I stand naked, and God says, what do you have to offer me for that? And I looked at him, and I said, Lord, I have only this. And I, I mean, this is just what I saw. And out I put my hand, and in my hand was a little puddle of Jesus' blood. I said, I have only this, Lord. I just have the blood of my Lord Jesus to offer you as an atonement, as a payment, as recompense for all that magnitude of sin that you just showed me. And God said, it satisfied him. He said, that's the only thing that would have satisfied him. As if he had taken the, the, the weight of the magnitude of my skin and put it on a balance scale, and that little bit of Jesus' blood brought it back. And that blood atoned for all that sin. That's what all this is. That's the gospel. That's the cross where the payment was made. That's the resurrection where it was affirmed, confirmed, that God accepted the payment. And ultimately, when we stand before God, we have nothing to offer of ourselves, only the shed blood of Jesus that we placed our faith in that washes away all our sins. Give me an amen. Amen. Okay. So then... I've been ending with one of these every week. I'm going to end with it and its cousins this week. If that's true for us, then let the knowledge of the gospel, let a, the knowledge of our understanding of our, of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God, the knowledge of what Jesus did on our behalf, the knowledge of the resurrection today, the resurrection affirming that it was effective our response to that. Let that knowledge lead us all to these verses. And I'm just going to read them to you. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Because of all that, Paul speaking, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Remember the scripture that said, To serve the living God. We have a call not just to salvation, but to serve the living God, to walk out his will on this earth. Let us walk day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, in a manner worthy of our calling. Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, understanding what that gospel represents, what the cost was, that we would conduct ourselves on this earth as aliens in a manner that is worthy, that recognizes the gospel. Colossians 1 and verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Worthy of the Lord. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there you have four instances, four exhortations, four implorings that we would live our lives in a manner first worthy of the call that's on our lives. Secondly, worthy of the gospel that had the power to save us. Thirdly, worthy of the Lord who sacrificed himself on our behalf that we could even have a hope of salvation. And finally, manner worthy of the God who called us into his kingdom and glory through his son, Jesus Christ. Hey, Pat, Kenner had a yeah, Kenner, go ahead. You got to unmute yourself to go ahead. Kenner? Yeah, are you there? Yes. Okay. I, I'm going to talk about two different things. The first thing is how do I know that he rose from the dead, really? I, I believe what the Bible says. And that's one, that's only one testimony. The other testimony is that he has come to live within me. And I know that he's there because I have fellowship with him inside. He's different from my my own soul. So he is always speaking in me. My spirit bears witness with his spirit that I'm a son of God. So it's not just that I believe what the Bible says, that I do believe what the Bible says. However, that is strengthened by what he is doing in me. He lives in me. I know that for sure. That did not be taken from me. It's like my experience is real simple. He lives in me. The other thing about Thomas, how did Jesus know what Thomas was saying to other people? I don't think anybody would have told him. Then number two, did you notice that when Thomas was having a hard time believing, Jesus went and proved it to him? I think that's wonderful about Jesus, don't you? Amen. He would make himself known. He didn't yeah. damn Thomas for not believing. He manifested himself so Thomas yes. could believe. He helps our infirmities. Always. Amen. Amen. Like, like Gail was saying earlier in her testimony about the Lord, the Lord was saying to her, you know? I mean, it's the Lord talking to Gail, telling Gail on a very personal level, you know, about her life and him. And it's just wonderful that he does that. It is wonderful. Amen. Thanks, Kennard. Blessings blessings. So Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for what this day represents. Help us, Lord, to be humble and grateful and understanding and transformed and changed and and bold because of our understanding of this day, of what this day means and, and what Jesus has done for us, what you've done for us, Lord, that you were a just God and that you required the recompense and that Jesus selflessly offered himself to come and provide that recompense so that all who should place faith in him could be called sons of God. We praise you this day. We praise you every day. We thank you today. We ask that you be blessed that all over this world 
Christians are reaffirming their faith. People are understanding and offering to you faith that they might be reconciled to you. And it was all affirmed 2,000 years ago on this day when by your power, the righteous one, the one who fulfilled the law, was raised from death to life. We praise you, we thank you, we honor you, we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.